You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. So today's guest on the podcast is Colonel Joe Hilbert. Colonel Hilbert just ended his two-year assignment as the Commander of Operations Group at the Joint Multinational Readiness Center in Hollingsfeld, Germany. Colonel Hilbert, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. So I'm really excited. This caps off our three, what we call DIRT CTC, Combat Training Centers episodes. We had the National Training Center first and JRTC, and it's really a great privilege to be able to get JMRC to learn about what's at JMRC and how urban operations are incorporated into all the training events. So, sir, if you don't mind, I'd like to jump right in. And we have a wide variety of listeners, both military, non-military. Can you explain what JMRC is and what your duties were as the commander of operations group? Yeah. So um, JMRC is, as you said, the Joint Multinational Readiness Center. Throughout its history, it's had a a couple of different names inside U.S. Army Europe. Some older folks may remember it as CMTC. That's what it was when I went through as a young captain. But it's uh, the Hohenfels training area. It is in the Oberfalz region of Bavaria. And pretty interesting history. Originally was a training area that was established by the Wehrmacht as a part of World War II. They used it to build up part of the defenses of the Maginot Line and, and test breaching. And so there's some old bunkers that are out there that you can see it it served its purpose as a training area prior to World War II. During the war, it became a POW camp, an interned persons camp, then following the war, a displaced persons camp. And so when the U.S. came in, liberated by, uh, I believe it was the 9th Infantry Division, but I'd have to, I'd have to recheck, my, recheck my math on that one. But it came in and when the U.S. forces came in and about the, in the 1950s, they expanded the training area to what it is today. And then it served every purpose of being a live fire training area until about mid-1980s became a, a training area for force on force. That was after the establishment of uh, NTC and JRTC. They built one specifically for Europe. It's unique among the DIRT CTCs in that it's the only regional DIRT CTC, meaning that while its threat and while its environment complies with TRADOC's OP4 doctrine and accreditation, they at JMRC do attempt to portray what is fighting in a European theater, what would that potentially look like? And so therefore it is more, it has a much more regional focus than the other two DIRT CTCs that we'll call them region agnostic, even though the terrain might be different. As far as capabilities there, JMRC does everything from light infantry, striker, armored BCTs that come through. And then you really have to look at that training center as more than just the dirt that it's got. It's the smallest of the dirt CTCs by terrain. But when you consider Europe and when you consider what 7th ATC has done in, in building a networked training environment in Europe, it actually, we've got the ability to tie and we have tied in and linked in with other training centers across Europe to really make a much broader, much bigger space, both in a constructive fight and a live fight. And then finally kind of ties in with Grafenvir to the north where the live fire portion of the rotation is done. So sir, for, for full visibility, I last was at the JMRC back when it was called CMTC in 1998. I know it has changed greatly, but how big is it? I know it's the smallest of the three dirt CTCs. I've seen different data. I think on the website, it says it's about 40,000 acres. Is that about right? So I would defer to the website if it says about 40,000 acres. I think it's probably about 10 by 20 kilometers as far as the dirt portion of it. But again, what what the the training center will do is they'll expand that through a constructive fight, both with adjacent units and then 
both in the depth of the battle space. So if you can picture kind of a linear fight in the constructive arena, you would be fighting a force that generally the storyline, though it changes with, with each rotation, is a group from the Skullcan Alliance, a NATO-approved scenario, will attack from the east to the west, kind of through the Czech Republic, and you will see them in the constructive fight. And then when they cross the boundary, we'll turn them into live op four, and we'll go live op four on blue four there. Yeah, I've seen some data about the Joint Multinational Simulation Center that's really supposed to be pretty impressive. Right. So the, the so the JMSC is a, underneath the umbrella of 7th Army Training Command. JMSC is a, is up north in Grafenbeer, supporting the JMRC rotations with part of the simulation support and the constructive report. You could look at JMSC as, as kind of the ability to do like MCTP-like warfighter type exercises at JMSC at Grafenbeer. And then JMRC, truly the, the DIRT CTC. Unique to JMRC and its mission is like the other CTCs, they do about 10 rotations a year. No two of them are necessarily alike. Of the 10 rotations, we'll call it about six of them are date rotations. And then there'll be another four that are a combination of MREs, mission rehearsal exercises, or otherwise. Some of the rotations will take place in Hohenfels. Again, unique to the CTCs, Hohenfels has an exportable capability. So all of the instrumentation, all of the OCTs, all of the radio networks, we can export that anywhere in Europe and establish the exact same capability in another training area, as an example. And they do that routinely. Each summer, there's a, generally a summer series of exercises where they'll move the training center out and you know, conduct it across multiple national boundaries or uh, in some cases in, in concentrated areas, maybe another host nation training center. So that's one of the one of the unique parts of JMRC and its mission, and that's the you know truly it is a multinational training center. No rotation is done there, U.S. alone. It's all multinational by design. And then the different types of rotations, as I said, it'll do light infantry striker, multinational armor brigade combat teams, mission rehearsal exercises for Kosovo. Georgians will come and train there. It's pretty unique in its scope of the mission sets that are conducted. I wanted to get into that because. I mean, I know it was, it was originally you know, developed as a combat training center for Europe-based units, and that has definitely changed over time. I think we only have, what, like four brigade combat teams remaining in the European theater by, I guess, permanent assignment. So what's the main clientele of JMRTC? I know you said that there's no single U.S. rotation, though always a combination of multinational, but I mean, what type of troops are going through on a yearly basis through JMRC? So we'll start with the Europe Assigned Forces, uh, 2nd Cav Regiment and the 173rd. Those two will come through uh, JMRC once a year as a brigade. In one case, it'll be where we will conduct their brigade level training. And in another case, it will be their CTC rotation. The only real difference between the two is the structure and intensity of the exercise, as well as how it's funded. Uh, one funding stream is paid for by their home nation, their home station training, and another one is paid for through uh, Army CTC dollars. So there's those two. The uh, rotationally or regionally aligned force that is an armor brigade combat team that is forward deployed in Europe, they will get a rotation at JMRC. It's traditionally called Combined Resolve. It is a multinational rotation in that they'll have the brigade headquarters, their field artillery battalion, their brigade support battalion, and probably two of their maneuver battalions, and then the other two battalions may be multinational battalions. Then there's an exercise called Allied Spirit that is a larger multinational rotation. The example I'd give you is the Allied Spirit that we did in 2019 uh, when I was there was a 
German brigade, a Bundeswehr brigade with a U.S. battalion inside it. They had two Israeli companies. They had a, if I remember right, they had a Polish battalion uh, that was assigned, a Ukrainian company. So it's, you know, largely German brigade, but with multinationals assigned. And then the, what we would call the away games, the the rotations that go where the CTC is exported to other training centers. And then those are always a combination of, of U.S. units as a primary training audience, as well as multinational battalions, companies, et cetera, that are, that are plugged in there. Uh, I think the other thing that makes it unique, and NTC is, has currently done something similar with the 1st Infantry Division, but we always have a, a HICON that is either a multinational division. So for example, the Germans, when they came and did uh, Allied Spirit, they had their own brigade and then they had their division headquarters on top of them fighting a constructive fight. But we've also had uh, US brigades that have worked for 11th Armored Cav Division out of Poland has come through the ARC, some of the other multinational corps from NATO have come through as the HICON. And then they'll they'll HICON the, the live brigade that's in the box, as well as the constructive brigades that are outside the box, but fighting in one division level fight. It gives a, a real good fabric for the rotational unit. I remember one rotation specifically where we had 1st Infantry Division was the HICON. They were set up as the division main back at Fort Riley, Kansas. They had their DTAC forward with us at Hohenfels. In the box was the 173rd. To the north was 2nd Cav Regiment in a CPX that was uh, fighting a constructive fight with a Czech brigade in the south. And then the rotationally aligned cab was in there as the as the cab. And for 1st Infantry Division, they provided the HICON with all of those organizations fighting in that fight. Only one live BCT. For the BCT in the box for the 173rd, it gave that brigade commander brigade commanders with whom you could do adjacent unit coordination. It gave the division brigades that could create effects that impact on the brigade that was in the in the box as the primary training audience. Really a unique, unique opportunity for brigade commanders that go through there and for units that go through there to when they when they get a chance to see it's not just them in the box, but it is it's their brigade, it's their forces in the box, but they're absolutely affected by what's happening outside the box in the constructive fight. So what what is HICON stand for? Uh, sorry, that's the uh, the higher control. So you'd have a, a rotational unit, and then uh, you could think of it as the higher headquarters. It's just not undergoing the same the same evaluation. And every CTC has a high con. If you go to JRTC, they have a high con. It's generally the 21st Infantry Division. It's the 52nd Infantry Division at NTC. At Hohenfels, we call it Multinational Division Hohenfels. And again, it gets to the regional alignment. That division order that gets produced is actually a NATO order or an order that has NATO terminology, NATO phrases. And even though the United States members absolutely, the United States is absolutely a member of NATO, sometimes there are some differences in the way we would phrase things and doctrinally publish things. And so we make sure that the order that is given is a is a NATO compliant order to the to the US unit that's trained in there. That's pretty impressive. Now for the dirt portion, there is a dedicated op for just like the other CTCs, right? There is. So 1st Battalion, 4th Infantry is the opposing forces. It is a light infantry battalion MTO, but they have 113s that have been visually modified to replicate BMPs, T-72s. They've got a, a ZSU in there. They're a light infantry battalion MTO with a little bit of an exception. They have a Delta company, a tank company. It's the largest tank company in the army, albeit one without tanks, <laughs> with the exception of the, the modified 113s that they have. And then the country of Slovenia has five permanently assigned T-72s that they station at Hohenfels, and then they come up periodically and play the op for. Additionally, one of the neat things that the multinational components of, of JMRC is we will get op for support from across Europe. So you might have real BMPs in the Blue 4 and real BMPs in the op for, and we've seen that before where you know, one country brought their BMPs and was in the Op 4 and the other one was in the Blue 4. We've real C T-72s on both sides of the lines, M84 series tanks. 
and then other variants of equipment, it adds a level of complexity to the fight where for the rotational unit, that level of situational awareness and know that that's a BMP that's a threat and this one is not a threat just becomes so much more important because of the fight. And I think that's critical when you consider any type of potential European fight, you're going to have that challenge of equipment, both friendly and enemy, that's going to be similar. And so your ability to have the right level of situational awareness becomes extremely important to not just accomplish your mission, but also obviously prevent fratricide and other other bad things from happening. I can imagine the lessons that get learned and not just vehicle recognition of the enemy, but partnership. I don't know if I remember that from when I went through it so long ago, but I can imagine that's amazing commander unit training when you're working with so many different multinational elements and all the lessons that, of partnership operations that you would get out of that. It is. And so for the units that come through there, JMRC considers itself to be a multinational interoperability laboratory. And so you'll hear JMRC talk frequently about the three uh, types of interoperability. You've got the human, the procedural, and the technical. And that aligns with NATO doctrine. It aligns with U.S. doctrine. The thought is, is that probably technical interoperability, that ought to be the easiest, right? I mean, I don't know what's in your pocket. You might have an iPhone, you might have an Android, but both of those systems are pretty fully compatible, you know, with the exception of the App Store, right? You'd be surprised that technical interoperability is actually probably the hardest thing that we try to achieve. It's more than just, can you talk on the same frequency, but can your mission command systems, are they interoperable? Are the other ABCS systems you have that are interoperable? Just think about your standard battalion talk or brigade talk and just the variances in computers and softwares and ABCS systems that would then have to talk. Procedural interoperability is probably the next hardest, and that gets down to how do units operate, but it's actually fairly easily figured out once we get in there, and that's what you'll see units figure out. The easiest one's actually the human interoperability, exchanging of LNOs and things like that. And at the end of the day, for the NATO units that come in there, while our doctrines may differ at the end of the day, we are all part of an alliance and we do have a common understanding. And so that's that's our easiest one to solve. But that's the fight at JMRC every time is it's going to be multinational and you're going to have to work the interoperability piece. And it absolutely is more than just simple vehicle recognition. I mean, I think that's an amazing thing about JMRTC. We're not going to be fighting in the future, not to say that we ever have in the past as a, as a single service or as a single nation. It's, it's going to be some type of partnered alliance of some type. That's right. And when I think about fighting in Europe in a European environment, there's there's probably three things that just jump out in my mind. Number one, it's going to be congested, meaning that there's going to be a lot of people, there's going to be a lot of forces. It's absolutely going to be hybrid. If we've watched any of the conflicts in Europe recently, we know that there is a hybrid component to it. But then it's absolutely going to be multinational. We are members of an alliance for a reason. It's an extremely important alliance. And so, so by all means, it's going to be multinational. So, Sir, let's talk about the terrain of JMRC. Since I've done that with the other CTCs, for the most part, I would say the rolling hills of Germany. Can you briefly describe what the majority of the, the box, let's say, the training environment at JMRC is? It is predominantly, as you described, rolling hills with a mixture of open areas, wooded terrain, lots of IV lines. One of the former brigade commanders for the uh, 173rd, he coined it, it is the quintessential 7-0 terrain, right? So if you picked up 
7-0, you open that manual up and you looked at all the different little pictures in there, the cartoon, you would see Central Europe, right? You might be looking across an open area that then blends into a hill that's heavily wooded. Maybe you're up on a hill and you're looking down and you're seeing, uh, you know, a combination of open areas and hills. So that's that's the terrain. It, it's a, uh, a really neat forest and ecosystem that's there that's got a lot of it's got a lot of places to hide. It might be small inside, but you can absolutely maneuver in some pretty unique ways there. It does have a combination of town sets and villages that are in there, and then it's a mixture of, of road types as well. Though, candidly, most of them are going to be, when you get into the training area, they're going to be hard-packed gravel or, or other trails and things like that. Let's go there, sir, since you briefly mentioned it, but this is the Urban Warfare Project podcast, and I usually press, and I'm really interested, especially if I haven't been there lately, about how urban operations are replicated in the training environment. So you mentioned the presence of these towns and villages, but could you expand on, are there some major ones? Is urban operations, like the other CTCs, one of the major, they don't do lanes, nobody does lanes, but one of the major missions that they'll get a part of their continuous rotation? So the urban areas in JMRC are are varied, and I would I would say they they vary from uh, small villages to one large urban area. There's a neat history behind them. Each of the towns they obviously have German names: Kittensee, Ravensdorf, Schwind. Those towns actually were villages that existed in the training area before the Wehrmacht came in, and then they were relocated outside the training area to other places. So kind of in, in deference to the history there, that's what the towns has have been named. Now, you can find some ruins from original structures throughout the training area, and there's some pretty neat places in there, Roman churches from the Middle Ages that are in there, or at least ruins from them. But the town sets that units will operate in, those smaller villages that are that carry those namesakes, those are kind of standard, I would call them standard training area mount sites that have been built that have buildings that function just like anywhere else, the school, the fire station, the the gas station, the store, living spaces, office spaces, all those different components. They've got passages, there's some subterranean parts to it, and then they've got all the furnishings of any other mount site. You mentioned a big one. What's the big one like and how many buildings does it have with the levels? Right. So Ubingsdorf, that's what I was just going to say. Ubingsdorf is the larger urban area. And the numbers escape me as far as numbers of buildings, but Ubingsdorf is a is a good-sized mount area. It's unique in its history as well. So unlike the training areas, the cities that were named after former German villages, Ubingsdorf literally translate training village in German because it was built specifically for that purpose. It has no, it's not tied to something that was there previously. It was built for the Berlin Brigade in the late 1980s, really at the end of the Cold War. But it's got a uh, railhead in there. It's got bridges. It's got a consulate. It's got buildings that'll go up to five, maybe four to five, uh, maybe six stories. It's got a gas station. It's got some interconnected tunnels. It's got wider streets. And so it's, it's the main mount site that they have at JMRC. Is it always incorporated into the mission? Is there at JRTC and NTC, there's one mission, usually attack to seize or attack to clear, that's historically incorporated into the operation? Is that similar at JMRC? Is this Ubensdorf used for some type of major multi, I mean, even up to a BCT operation, or is it just a smaller set? It kind of depends. Candidly, most rotations, most force-on-force rotations at JMRC, the urban areas are part of the terrain. They are manned by civilian role players. 
based on the type of rotation, we will hire role players from across Europe so that we can replicate the refugee flow that you would expect to see in large-scale combat operations in Europe. So you will get a host of different native speakers from across different places in Europe that will be a part of the civilian role players that are in there. And then the different cities, they'll be everything from pro, anti, to uh, neutral for the rotational forces. There's an information space that you fight in in those cities. There's an internet cafe that works on a closed internet loop. There's the ability to use the information operations network, which is a system provided by Tradoc G2 that replicates an information environment with really kind of rich storylines and newspaper articles and, and websites that you can read that are pro, con, neutral, that help the rotational unit see those cities as part of the terrain. Do we then task the brigade with specific missions of you must go secure the pumping station at Ubingsdorf or, or what have you? Generally, no. The rotation, if it's a force-on-force rotation, is a force-oriented rotation, but they have to operate in that environment. And so absolutely, the Op4 will use those urban areas to their advantage. And the rotational unit will have to figure out how do they want to deal with it. In one case, I remember one uh, brigade rotation, the, one of the urban areas was some things had not gone right. And that urban area was turning anti to the brigade. And, you know, the brigade commander had a problem because the human terrain was not supportive of his operations in this one urban area. But he also was about to get hit with, you know, a fairly sizable battalion level attack. And, you know, my comment to him was, you now have a choice as far as where you spend your intellectual energy. You absolutely can go down and get this town on your side, but you might not be here tomorrow if you don't stop these tanks and BMPs from coming into your rear area. So figure out how you're going to solve that security problem while simultaneously solving the problem you have with that's coming out of these urban areas. So it's not necessarily a directed mission per se but it's part of the terrain. The brigades have to learn how to operate in and around it and how they they will reap the benefits or the consequences of how they approach that problem set that's part of their operating environment. Yeah, absolutely. And I understand their free-flowing rotations and no set task or it's free-flowing like it's supposed to be with force on force. Right. Now, I will say that unique to JMRC as well as because they're forward in Europe, the rest of that space that operates in the town sets, if you think about all your non-governmental actors, they're able to get more than just role players. So it's not uncommon for the folks that are with the State Department, specifically Mission Germany from the consulates and the embassy in, in Germany, to send some of their consular officers to participate in a rotation as the consular officer for Übungsdorf or the consular officer for Kittensee County and interact with the brigade just as they would as a consular officer abroad. So we're kind of neat to watch that interaction with Department of State personnel interacting with our brigade combat teams just as they would elsewhere. So they also are able to get NGOs in the form of the Bayerische Reuters Kreuz, the Bavarian Red Cross comes through, the Technische Hilfwerk, which is kind of like a German FEMA-like organization they come in and, and they will do disaster relief in these areas and work in and around the brigade and, and present them a, neat, a unique level of complexity that's more than just a replication. On the State Department side, what that also gives us the ability to do is some pretty unique mission sets. You can train a NEO with consular officers present, real consular officers. You can do a NEO with experts from state who, when you do the AAR, can tell you 
what they understood of how the operation was to go versus what the rotational unit understood. And then likewise, for those young consular officers, that's a great training opportunity that we've seen that they get out of it as well. It's not uncommon for some of them not to have had any exposure to the military or, or an operation like that. That sounds very unique. I don't think I remember that type of interagency participation or multinational interagency, almost complexity for the commander and for the staff at a CTC. I just don't know if it happens at the other CTCs. It sounds very unique. I was actually going to ask how are the civilian populations replicated in rotations and in these villages and towns, but that was more than I was actually expecting. Yeah, they'll have certain civilian role players who will have traditional roles. One is the mayors, the police chiefs, and those type of things. And then they'll have others that they'll hire. I think one of the neater things that I've kind of run across in there is the town of Insulvang, or sometimes the town of Ravens, or sometimes they're considered a university town, if you will. I know that doesn't look necessarily like a university town, but it'll have a building that's supposed to be a university. And in the storyline, it is supposed to be a university. And they will, no kidding, have university students who will come in there and they're from the University of Nuremberg, Regensburg. I think there was one who came in from one of the universities up north. But bottom line, they brought their books down and they did their homework (laughs) in the box while wearing Miles gear and making a little side money, if you will. But it adds kind of a a no kidding part of the fabric. So when you are working in that city, you've got university students there. We've had other NGOs who've replicated their roles in those towns. And then of course, other you get your host of nefarious actors where there are some that are working to do more harm than good inside the town sets and the brigade's got to deal with those too. I was doing a little bit of research and I was fascinated to come across one of the basically Ubensdorf missions for, I think it was Combined Resolve, where the final mission was a defense of the urban area. And I, to be honest, I don't know if we and the other CTCs have that availability, but it makes sense as you were talking about while you replicate the data environment, you're also focused on a European potential mission sets and how we sometimes, and even my guests sometimes forget that not all about the offense and attacking cities, we still have to have a proficiency in defending urban terrain as well. You know, that's absolutely right. The urban area, it's a part of the environment. There's a tactical problem that's associated with it. It's not much different than the tactical problem associated with conduct attack in a city versus to conduct an attack in an open area. Those just have two different dynamics to it. And if there is key infrastructure in there, we absolutely would have to defend it. When we do a non-combatant evacuation exercise there in Hohenfels, there's absolutely a defense component to it as well. You can imagine there are displaced persons who are flowing into this city who are seeking to get out. There are folks who are on the evacuation list that have to be separated and moved and escorted to an evacuation point. There's all of those things that are happening on the non-combatant evacuation side. Well, there's got to be a security environment there. And so there's got to be a defense that happens as a part of that on, some would call it maybe an outer cordon, but even broader as you're doing a NEO for a reason. There's a problem that has happened that is occurring and it's not always a natural disaster. So if it happened in a combat environment, absolutely must be prepared to fight in an area of complex terrain or complex environment where you potentially are conducting a no kidding textbook battalion defense while another battalion is working on a non-combatant evacuation or some other mission set inside a more populated area. Absolutely. A couple other of my guests have talked too about, not that we've lost this capability to do urban defense, but imagining a defense planning scenario, imagining, let's say a Russian advance on more terrain, how a smaller size force, since we don't have major forces and may have to quickly establish a bulwark or a defensive line just to buy time in a major campaign against an advancing major military force. Right. The reality is, is if you think about 
or maybe it's worth thinking about warfare and why you would conduct it. Certainly, there would be key pieces of terrain that would have a tactical advantage. But if you're imposing your will on an enemy, it's hard for me to picture an environment where you're just fighting for the planes of something. The folded gap, right? Yeah, exactly, right? I mean, like, there's a reason that you would have to defend the Fulda Gap if we go back to the Cold War. And, you know, it was to stop the occupation of, of Western Europe. And that occupation would not necessarily be the wheat fields, right? It would be for urban areas and, you know, control of a population. And I think you could even look at like current European conflicts. Think of think of Crimea, think of the Donbass and Eastern Ukraine. If, if you look at that, it's not a fight for natural resources. It's not a tactical fight for the best wheat field. It's a fight for influence. And that influence has its impact on populations and on people. And so therefore, the fight, if you will, the ability to influence those areas has gives them a tactical advantage. The idea that you can avoid urban areas, there's a tactical reason you would do that. Absolutely. But if you think you're going to not be involved with populations, that's probably not accurate. I mean, you're seeing my tune a little bit, sir, and avoiding bypass is great until you can't and you have to have a capability. Right. And make no mistake, let's go back to the example of the brigade commander who has a tank on tank problem. He can't influence the population if he's been captured tomorrow. And you've got to get that security provided. So when we do think about large-scale combat operations, there is a physics problem that has to be solved in relationship to an opposing force. And that's where our correlation of forces come into play. That's where we do fight for tactical advantage. But we can't wish away that second problem that will surface. What problem do you need to solve today? And then what problem do you need to be prepared to solve tomorrow? That transitions really nicely, sir, into my really one of my last and not an easy question to answer. You watched multiple rotations come through JMRC for sure over your two-year period, both U.S. forces and multinational forces. And I always ask the COGS, since they're so involved in every rotation, what are the lessons, if they're specific to urban operations, winner, winner, chicken dinner, better. But if they're not, it's still great for our listeners if you're on the brigade staff and the battalion staff or commander. I know that each COG has kind of its, especially with urban operations, they're, hey, I've, I've watched this happen over and over again. And we as a, you know, as a military should be working on this, or I, you know, this is something I routinely have to recommend to the forces coming through that, hey, are you thinking about this part of the complexity of the urban operating or just in war fighting in general? Yeah. So for the brigade commanders, I think the number one lesson learned in my comment was start with defining your fight at echelon. What are you going to do at the brigade? What do you expect battalions to do? What do you expect companies to do, et cetera? That sounds really simple, but that's difficult. And you have to define that fight at echelon in both time and space. So in a linear fight, often the brigade commander says, I'm going to fight from the CFL forward to the, from the brigade CFL to the division CFL. And then I'm going to have a security zone fight with the reconnaissance forces that's, you know, short of the CFL to the beginning of my defense. And then I'm going to have battalions. Your fight is here. And my promise to you is I'm going to take this formation down to X percent. And this is, I'm going to kill this part of it. And I'm expected you to kill that part of it. I'm going to do this at this time in the fight. And I expect you to do this at this time in the fight. And so defining your fight at echelon in time and space, probably the, the best thing you can do. That also does involve the urban space as well. And for the 
commander, you define it at echelon, and then the staff has to listen to the commander. And this is where the staff can help take things off the commander's plate. So if you are in the information space, what are you doing to enable that commander's fight at echelon? Sometimes we get in this bad habit of staffs of, I must tell the boss about my staff function and what I am doing today. Trust me, most brigade commanders know if you're on their staff, you're doing great work for the United States Army and for the brigade. And you may not be the person that briefs the commander every day, but what are you doing to help enable that brigade commander at echelon? And then know where to use the commander for the time and space that you need. So I'm kind of walking into the urban area a little bit there, at least that's in the back of my mind as I say that. Some of the things that we saw done really well is, you know, as the commander is dealing with this very lethal problem set and the mechanics of how do I stop these tanks and BMPs from penetrating my defense while knowing that I've got these urban areas in the middle of my fight. One TTP we saw worked effectively well was the use of a deputy commander who takes on that portion of the fight for the commander. So yes, the commander is helping the battalions and the, the companies fight the kinetic lethal fight while the deputy commander is helping fight the information space and the urban terrain to then enable that because the deputy commander does carry the title of commander. And so it gives that level of emphasis and authority. And that person's generally senior enough to know, I need to take this problem to the boss now. And I need to, you need to now let battalions fight that lethal part while you come with me for this key leader engagement. So that's kind of, you know, to, to bring it to your urban side is maybe a best practice. But I go back to to find your fight at Echelon in time and space, start there, and then everything else will begin to work itself out, I think. Yes, sir. And those are basically gold for, I'm sure, any unit preparing for a combat training store or combat in general. I mean, we focus on urban operations on the podcast, but like you said, a lot of this is just war fighting and then there's complexity of the environment. I do think there are some differences if the fight is actually happening on urban terrain and and I've seen in other major war games or CTCs, and I think I talked to this at NTC, of they almost have to give the commander no other option but to fight in the urban terrain because they will avoid it like they should in, in any case. But the tactical situation and the, even the operational situation may dictate, you no, know, the fight is actually in the urban terrain, whether it's ME-based or terrain-based type of mission set. Right. JMRC may get over on that one just because it is a smaller box. And so you can't avoid some of it. I mean, (laughs) you are going to have to figure out what you're going to do with an opponent that's going to use parts of that terrain against you. So it's not uncommon for there to be a fight in and around it simply because the goal is to replicate a European battlefield. And it goes back to it's going to be congested, it's going to be multinational, and it's going to be hybrid. Well, sir, I think we'll end it there. And I really appreciate your time. And this is this is very valuable for me. And I know it'll be very valuable for the listeners. No, John, thanks. It's a pleasure. I'll end it by saying, you know, I'm no longer the cog at JMRC, but boy, I look back on that time with a lot of fondness. That was one of the most humbling assignments I ever had as the cog. And just to watch the professionals that are there, but then also to watch commanders go through and struggle with it. For the commanders that I had a chance to, to watch go through, I can assure you, I learned so much more from them than they ever learned from me while they were there. They might not have realized it at the time, but we've got some incredibly talented people in our army. And I can say it because I saw it. And we've got some incredibly talented people among our allies and partners. And the, one of the best things about that assignment was watching them as professionals apply their craft. It's impressive. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern Wars 2 at West Point 
What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out IndieWise other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.